You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Father, we do indeed want to praise you because you alone are worthy. We join our voices together with the thousands and thousands of others who this morning have been praising your name all across the globe because you're worthy, because you, the lamb who was slain, have rescued a people for yourself. Thank you. Would you receive our praise? Would it be true, not just of our lips, but of our hearts? And we ask, please, Holy Spirit, that you'd continue your work in your church, here in us. Fashion us, shape us, conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus, Heavenly Father. That we might, with word and with our very lives, Shout praise. Help us now as we come to your word that we might continue in worship to the praise of your name for your glory and for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning, River City, and welcome. Uh, We're continuing in our uh, study in Luke's gospel. Um, I, I was telling someone this week, I feel like we've been in chapter 22 for a long time, and the reality is we have. Uh, there are 71 verses in chapter 22, and it's my fault. We've been doing them in small chunks. Uh, we're not going to finish today, uh, at least not 22. We have a little more to go, but we will jump right back into where we left off. Uh, Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 54. If you want to find your way there, some folks from our strike team are coming around and can get you a Bible if you need one so you can follow along. And as you're finding your way to Luke 22, starting in verse 54, Four, let me just ask a question. Can you recall a time when you felt really bad about something? Maybe it was you, you regret something you said or you did. You don't have to raise your hand. I just want you to think about it. Because if anyone thinks about it for, well, one, too long, I know everyone's hand will go up. And two, if you think about it too long, this is going to start like a really depressing morning. You can probably all recall a time you felt really bad about Something. My wife Amy, uh, Amy tells a story, and yes, I asked her if I could share this because she's shared it before. She's actually written about it. When she was growing up, for her 10th birthday, my wife Amy really wanted a 10 speed bicycle. You know, the cool one with the curly handlebars and the tiny little seat. 10 speeds. That was like fast in the 80s. 10 speeds. And she, she made it really clear to everyone in her family, that what she wanted for her birthday was a 10-speed bicycle. Nothing else. That's what I want. She hinted. She gestured, gestured, and from her own description, these are her words again, just going to clarify, I'm not getting myself in trouble here. Her words, at times she was a brat about wanting a bike so bad. It was just that's what she wanted. So, birthday comes. Sing happy birthday, blow out the candles. Mom and dad lead her into the garage off the kitchen, and there, assembled with a bow, 
in the garage is a 10-speed bicycle. And Amy says she felt terrible because for weeks she was awful. She was absolutely awful about it. She behaved so poorly, she says, that all, all the while when she had no idea that as she was complaining and pleading and I really want this, they had no idea that her parents had already purchased that bike and it was cleverly hidden in the neighbor's garage. It had been hers long before she even started complaining about it. Amy had feelings of regret, 10-year-old regret. And I'm sure you felt something similar, right? You felt that twinge of regret and remorse. You realize you've said something or you've done something and you would like to go back in time and do it differently. We're going to deal a little bit with some of this in our text today, Luke 22 but before we go further with this, let's read it, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Luke 22, starting in verse 54, we're going to read through verse 62. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Luke 22, starting in verse 54. Then they seized him, they seized Jesus, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour still, Still, excuse me, an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly, this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is God's holy word. Now, if we go back just a few verses in Luke 22, Jesus and his disciples are celebrating the Passover meal together. Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. This is my body and this is my blood of the new covenant. And then Jesus tells his disciples in verses 31 and 30 through 34 of Luke 22, a few verses ago, he says, Satan has demanded to sift you, but I have prayed for you. And then Peter is the one who pipes up and says, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, I tell you, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me, deny three times that you know me. After the meal, Jesus leads them outside of the city to this familiar garden to pray and to wait where he's betrayed by Judas and a mob and is arrested. That's where we pick up our text. That's where we start reading. They seize Jesus and lead him away. It details Jesus' arrest and Peter's denial, and it ends with Peter leaving the scene weeping bitterly in tears. What Jesus had told them was happening here in in real time. Peter was proving himself not to be strong. 
Peter was showing himself not to be brave, not actually willing to go with him either to prison or to death. Peter denied Jesus, and it breaks Peter in the moment. Maybe you have read the head this week, if you've been reading this passage, or maybe even as we read it now, you can feel it, can't you? The brokenness of Peter. And I think just about every one of us can read that, that last verse, verse 62. And even though it doesn't have much description, it doesn't describe a whole lot of the scene, it's only seven words. We can all feel that. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. One of my favorite, one of what I feel is one of the better Bible commentaries, there's a good amount of detail of the denials in this passage and all that's happening around it. But when it comes to verse 62, Walter Leefield, in his commentary on the book of Luke, again, one of my favorites, the only thing he says about verse 62 is this, Peter's feelings need no further comment. Okay? But part of the reason he doesn't feel the need to comment is because you and I, when we read it with just our normal, plain eyes, we can, we can feel that weight, can't we? Peter went out and wept bitterly. His grief is obvious. But for our time this morning, I actually want to zero in on verses 61 and 62. That's where I want to spend the bulk of our time this morning. Now, we'll walk through the whole passage, but, but 61 and 62 are, I think, the most powerful part of this text that we're going to look at today. Peter is overwhelmed with grief. I think that's clear. Peter is sorrowful. Yes, I'm sure Peter has immediate regret for what has just happened, what he has just done. But I think something else is at work in Peter. I think Peter's bitter weeping is a beautiful sign of repentance. And so that's our big idea this morning from this passage. If you remember no other thing, remember this, that there is a difference between regret and repentance. There is a difference between regret and repentance. And I want to argue from this passage that there is a beauty in this bitter weeping. Before we get to see the beauty of bitter weeping, we need to walk the path that leads to bitter weeping. So let's, let's do that. Let's walk this path through the text a little bit. We already heard Jesus make a prophetic statement to Peter, Luke 22:34. You'll deny me before the sun rises this morning. You will deny me. Not just once, Jesus tells Peter, you will deny me three times. Jesus prophesied Peter's failure. But Jesus also, if you remember, promises to pray for him. I'm going to pray for your protection, for your restoration, Peter, after you fail. And we find Peter and the disciples, rather than praying in the garden with Jesus as he asked them, they are sleeping for sorrow. They're overwhelmed. They have no strength, either physical or spiritual, to pray. So when the mob comes, Peter reacts out of fear. We talked about this last week. Pulls out the sword, slices off the ear of the servant, and then Jesus is arrested. That's the path we've walked so far. Now apparently, what happens here is the disciples scatter. They go every other direction except for Peter. Peter follows. When they take Jesus away, Peter follows the crowd. He wants to see what's going to happen next. Now remember, it's still the middle of the night. It's, it's something probably like three in the morning. So it's cool in the springtime in Jerusalem. And so Luke tells us they light a fire in the courtyard outside of the home of one of the chief priests. And they, 
wait to see what happens with Jesus. The mob stays, lights a fire, and waits. Peter joins in, at least to sit around the fire. Now, there will be a series of interrogations or mini-trials that Jesus goes through, and we'll look at some of those in the coming weeks, first with the Jewish council, and then with Pilate, the Roman governor, and then with Herod, the Roman-appointed Jewish king, sort of, leader. And then back to Pilate, where eventually he will be crucified by the Romans. In verse 55, we're told that Peter sits down amongst the crowd. And there are three different people who notice Peter and question Peter. Three different times he denies even knowing Jesus. Let's look at the first one, verse 56. Then a servant girl, seeing Peter as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, says, this man also was with him. Now it's dark, but Luke tells us that as Peter sits by the fire, as the light of the fire illuminates Peter's face, she looks at him and she says, I I recognize him. He was with this Jesus. Verse 57, but he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. He's caught off guard by the words of a lowly servant girl, and his, his uh, denial is dismissive and direct. He just says straight up, I don't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. That's the first denial. Keep going. Verse 58, a little later, someone else saw Peter and said, you also are one of them. Different person, different perspective. Peter's response, man... I am not. Again, Peter was recognized as being one of Jesus' disciples, and he denies being one of them. I am not one of them. That's his second denial. Look at the third, verse 59. After interval of about an hour, still another. So the way Luke describes it is like, these are three unique, different, unrelated recognitions saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. So now this third person doesn't only recognize Peter's face, he's heard Peter speak. His Galilean accent is giving him away. Like, hey, you're not from around here, are you? You sound like a Galilean, like Jesus, and all of that little crew that hang out with him. So Peter's accent gives him away even more than his face does. He doesn't just look like one of the disciples. He sounds like he is from Galilee, just like Jesus. And this third accuser is more emphatic. He's certain, certainly this man is also with him. Verse 60, but Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. Now now notice, as the accusations increase in intensity, so does the intensity of Peter's denial right? It starts short and like, nope, I am not. You shut your mouth. I don't even know what you're talking about. See the intensity ramp up? That's the intensity with which Peter is denying his association with Jesus. Verses 56 through 60 are three opportunities to be identified with Jesus. Three times Peter is given an opportunity to say, yes, yes, he's my Lord, and he doesn't. 
Three times he denies even knowing him. Not even, I'm not a follower of his. Yeah, I've heard of him. I don't even know him, let alone admit to being one of his closest friends. Look at verse 60. And immediately... And immediately, while he was still speaking, while Peter was still speaking, the rooster crowed. When does a rooster crow? It's an easy one. In the morning, right? Remember, it was a dinner. It was dinner the night before when Jesus told Peter, you will deny me three times before the morning comes. It was, it was a dinner the night before when Peter said, I'm ready, Lord, to go with you to death if need be. So we're, we're likely less than 12 hours between dinner and the rooster. And Peter denies him just like Jesus said he would. Look at verse 61. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord and how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. Verse 62, and Peter went out and wept bitterly. This is a this is an agonizing crying. This is heave crying. This is I can't stand up. Maybe you've had a cry like that yourself. So I'm sure that Peter felt remorse. I'm sure Peter felt shame and embarrassment for being so bold with Jesus and the others in the upper room, but being so afraid of a servant girl and a crowd of strangers in a courtyard. I'm sure he felt ashamed of this. I'm sure he had immediate regret for what he had said and what he had done. I mean, how could he not, right? If we put ourselves in Peter's shoes, we can all go, absolutely. Absolutely, he probably felt awful. So now we've, we've followed this path. We followed Peter on this little path that leads to him leaving, weeping bitterly. But I want us to see that there's beauty in Peter's bitter weeping. Remember our big idea that there's a difference between regret and repentance? So to highlight that, I want us to take a little deviation from Luke 22 just briefly and look at another response to failure from Matthew chapter 27. The difference between Peter and his failure and Judas and his. After Judas' betrayal in Luke 22, Luke doesn't mention Judas again until the first chapter of the book of Acts, which Luke is also the author. But Matthew 27, that Judas also had a response when Jesus was arrested. We looked at Peter already, kind of saved that for a second. We'll come back to it. Peter sees them arrest the Lord, and as he's getting taken from one interrogation to the next, the rooster crows, Peter leaves and weeps bitterly. That's Peter's response to his failures and his sin. But in contrast, I want briefly to look at Judas's response. You can turn there in your Bibles if you'd like, just a couple books back from Luke, Matthew 27. It'll be on the screen as well. The last verse of Matthew 26, verse 75, is, is where it kind of overlaps with Luke 22. Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And Peter goes out and weeps bitterly. That's what Matthew says, Matthew 26, verse 75. Matthew tells us a little bit more about what happens to Judas. That's Peter's response. Matthew chapter 27, verse 1. When morning came, so once the rooster crows, morning is now happening. 
The sun is starting to come up. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away to be delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. So after the the first interrogation with the chief priests, the Jewish leaders say, we're going to take Jesus over to Pilate. Because the Roman government are the ones who actually have the authority to inflict capital punishment on someone like Jesus. The, the Jewish leaders couldn't do that, but the Romans could. We're going to look more at that in the coming weeks. Back to Matthew, verse 3. Matthew 27, verse 3. When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, meaning he saw that he was moving from a Jewish court to the Romans. The Romans were now going to get involved. That raises the stakes. When, when Judas sees this, Matthew 27, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. Judas also had regret. It's possible that that Judas didn't want Jesus to die. He just wanted Jesus to get into trouble with the Jewish leaders. He just wanted his 30 pieces of silver, which, by the way, wasn't that much. It was about, give or take, a month's wages for an average worker. But now that Jesus was being taken to the Romans, maybe Judas was, well, he was. He was having second thoughts. This has gone further than I planned. He changed his mind, Matthew tells us. Judas had regret. He knew he had done something wrong. He knew Jesus was innocent of the accusations they were making. Judas had regret. And he had so much regret that he took the money that they gave him and offered it back to them, but they said, we don't want it. So he threw it back into the temple and left. Judas had regret. But my question is, is regret enough? I mean, don't forget what we know about Judas. He had this lingering sin in his life. The gospel writers tell us that he helped himself to money from their shared purse, that he was greedy, that he really didn't care about the poor. He was more concerned about himself. We know he willingly sold out Jesus. And as we said a few weeks ago, the devil found a willing partner in Judas. And I don't want us to miss this. There's a takeaway here from Judas's response, and it's, one of them is this, that sin will always take you further than you want to go. Every time. Sin will always go further than you want to go. And I think that's what's happening here with Judas a little bit. He's the, um, the lesson in that reality. Sin will always take you further than you want to go. Judas straight up says, I made a mistake. I made a mistake. I didn't want it to get this far, but here I am. I have betrayed, he says, by spilling, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And the response of the chief priests is, I don't know, remarkable. I was stunned again as I read this. How is this our problem? How, How is this? We don't care. You'll have to deal with that yourself. And so in his sin and in his shame, 
Judas goes out and he takes the horrible and heartbreaking step of taking his own life. He hangs himself from a tree in a field. Let's keep going a little bit in Matthew 27. Let's see the rest of Judas' story. The chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the coins, the potter's field, as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom the price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave it for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. I do find it ironic that the ones who paid the blood money can't accept it back because that would be unlawful. So instead, they buy the potter's field with the blood money of Judas and use it as a graveyard for strangers, which fulfills Old Testament prophecy. So even in their wickedness, they can't escape the sovereign will of God at work. So Matthew 27 and Luke 22 tell us something, that both Peter and Judas express regret, remorse over their sin. But the difference is one leads to death and the other leads to restoration. They both experience grief, but their grief is not the same. Apostle Paul talks about this. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, that there are actually two kinds of grief, two kinds of sorrow. Godly sorrow, godly grief, and worldly grief. Now, Paul, in his first letter to the church in Corinth... Paul was pretty direct. If you've ever read through 1 Corinthians, he pulls no punches because 1 Corinthians, the letter of 1 Corinthians, is a masterclass in tough love. Paul's letter to the church is, you guys are messed up, and here's the glorious grace of Jesus to rescue you, but you're messed up. So you got to deal with some stuff because they needed it. There were all kinds of shenanigans going on in the church in Corinth that Paul needs to address So he calls out their sin, he challenges them to grow in spiritual maturity, and by God's grace, the Spirit works in and among the church, and what happens? They grow. (laughs) They grow in maturity, they grow in holiness. And so in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he writes this, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 8, it'll be on the screen, Paul writes this, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, essentially even if I gave you sorrow... I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, Paul writes, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Paul's saying, I'm not sad that you felt bad. In a way, I'm actually glad that you felt bad, that you had some remorse, not for its own sake. I'm not glad that you just felt bad for feeling bad, but that the grief that you experienced moved you somewhere, particularly moved you to repentance that you weren't only regretful of your actions because I caught you and I said something about it. But when your sin was exposed and, and called out, you rightly saw it for what it was. 
It was sin against God. And you repented to God and through God's grace to you in repentance, you found forgiveness and life. And I think that's the, this, that we're seeing that happen right here in Luke 22 for Peter. His grief is leading him somewhere. Now, Judas had grief over his sin, but his grief doesn't turn him toward life and toward repentance and toward restoration. It turns inward for Judas, and it leads to death. But with Peter, his bitter weeping is an acknowledgement, not only that I have sinned, that's easy, (laughs) right? It's easy to be like, yeah, I messed that up but actually that there was hope on the other side of it. Why do I say that Peter's bitter weeping actually is grounded in hope? Look at, verse, uh, look at Luke 22 again. Peter denies Jesus third time. The rooster crows, verse 61. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. I don't know how he felt when you when we read that through the first time. But it's a, it's a heart punch, isn't it? It's piercing. Can you imagine that look? You have just done the unthinkable. You have said loudly and boldly that you do not know him. <clears throat> and then he comes into view. And he locks eyes with you. This is that feeling in your gut, that conviction that comes when your sin catches up to you. You know that feeling, don't you? But I want you to see something, two things. One, remember, Jesus told Peter this was going to (laughs) happen, which means Jesus is not surprised by Peter's sin, nor is he surprised by yours. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. Jesus looks at Peter. And I don't think these eyes are, this is not a look of condemnation. This is not a how dare you. This is compassion. Is Jesus saddened by Peter's sin? Absolutely. Jesus is not giving Peter's sin a pass. Well, I knew you were going to do it, so it's okay. I don't think he's saying that. I think it's actually, actually out of love that Jesus' look cuts Peter to the heart. It's because he loves him that he looks at him. In fact, that look here in Luke 22, verse 61, that same look, that word look, is the same look that John tells us that Jesus gives Peter, John chapter 1, verse 42, the very first time that Jesus looks at Peter in the Gospels, he gives him the same look. John Chapter 1 tells us that Peter's brother Andrew comes running to Peter and says, Peter, we found the Messiah. And he takes Peter by the arms and he drags him to see Jesus. John chapter 1, Jesus looked at him, looked at Peter. This look of examination is what it is. And he says, you are Simon, son of John, but you shall be called Cephas. You shall be called Peter. So Jesus looks at Peter, and with one glance, Peter knows exactly what he's done. And it causes grief over his sin. And it causes grief over his sin because Peter knows exactly 
who He is. And that's why it's so weighty. It's a godly grief that leads to salvation without regret. And here's how I, here's how I know, here's why I'm making that statement. Because Judas does die in his regret. It is unresolved. But Peter finds salvation. After the resurrection of Jesus, Peter is restored. Jesus himself commissions Peter as a shepherd to his sheep. Jesus tells him, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, you know I love you, Lord. He says, then feed my sheep. You know what you have to do. You know who you are. All the way to the end, take care of my sheep. It's Peter who preaches like a lion on fire at the day of Pentecost. It's Peter who does that. Peter stands up in public in Jerusalem and calls sinners to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus. And the Holy Spirit moves and thousands of people get saved on that day. Fearful Peter, who fled in tears, preaches gospel fire for the salvation of souls. Worldly grief leads to death, but godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. That's what I think is happening here. Now the question is, what do we do with this? How do we take, what do we take away from a text like this? When your conscience is stirred up, when you feel grief over the things that you have said and done, does it lead to repentance and the experience of forgiveness? Is my regret removed or does it remain? When dealing with your shortcomings and sins, are you repentant or just regretful? So the question I've been asking this week is, how do we do this? How do we diagnose our griefs and our sorrows? Is it worldly sorrow or is it godly sorrow? Is it worldly grief or is it godly grief? Well, if you just stick with me for a minute, let's look at worldly grief first. I think we tend to think that just because we feel a little bad for something, it's an automatic good. But not all grief is good. It is possible to feel bad, to feel sorrowful, to regret a decision or words or an action, and to do so in such a way that has nothing to do with God and has nothing to deal with our sin. And if that's the case, then there's no forgiveness. We just feel bad enough, long enough, that it kind of goes away. Maybe we feel embarrassed for our actions or because of what other people now think of us. So we are humiliated, but we are not humbled. We are more concerned about losing something important to us, whether that's money or status or reputation or approval, more than we are concerned about what motivated those actions in the first place. And we tend to feel shame because we love the praise of others more than we fear God. In fact, we might even use this phrase, I could never forgive myself. That actually might fall into the same category of worldly grief because either my regret is only focused on myself and what I have lost or I don't actually trust in the power of the cross and the promise of God to forgive. 
I think these are all examples of worldly grief. So as we're diagnosing our shame or our, or our regret or our feelings of sorrow, how do we know what they are? Worldly grief leads to death. Where do we express regret but fail to walk in repentance? That might be worldly grief. But what about godly grief? Paul says godly grief leads to repentance. Repentance just means to turn away, to turn away from something. Pastor Kevin DeYoung says it like this, instead of obsessing over regrets and feeling bad due to the opinions of others, godly grief mourns for sin, turns from sin, and finds forgiveness for sin in Christ. It deals with it. It mourns it. It turns from it. And it is forgiven for it. It's over. This is why I think Peter's weeping is godly grief. It sounds a little bit like David's pleading in Psalm 51. David was called out as king for adultery and murder. And he was guilty of both of them. And this is what we read in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. A little later, David writes, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Godly grief does not hide. Godly grief does not make excuses. Godly grief does not minimize sin. And Godly grief is the path to change, to restoration, and to salvation. It's not merely about clearing your name It's not about making sure everyone knows all the details of your side of the story. It's not merely about having a good cry and feeling bad enough for a while. Godly grief produces repentance, which leads to salvation. That's the rescue from sin, and that's how we change from death to life. Worldly grief produces only regret. Regret feels bad for past sins, but godly Grief produces repentance. And repentance turns away, desires change, is eager for restoration, not just relief from circumstances. And that's the check for us. How do we identify what's going on in our own hearts when we feel conviction? Are we content with regret or are we walking in repentance? DeYoung, Kevin DeYoung asks it this way Do you want to feel bad or do you want to change? Oof. He doesn't say oof, I added that. Do you want to feel bad or do you want to change? Some of us, truth be told, would rather feel bad. It's easier than being changed. Oof again, (laughs) right? We don't want mere regret. We want to move toward repentance. Why? Because repentance is the road to joy. It's the road to life. That's why I can say that there's beauty even in Peter's Bitter weeping. Psalm 30, verse 5, For his anger, the holy and righteous anger of the Lord, his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but there's a promise of joy in the morning. 
repentance that comes through bitter weeping will end in joy. I'm sure of it. Because we don't stay in our sin. We don't stay in our shame. We turn from it. We walk in the light toward God and in fellowship with one another. And we are welcomed. Repentance says, I don't have to cover my sin. I can confess it. And rather than trying to hold up my own righteousness or hold up my, it's not so bad in this area or that area, I can hold up Christ and say, He is my righteousness. Repentance is trusting that my sins are not the end. (laughs) Amen. That my failure is not the end, but on the other side of repentance, I will find salvation. I will find life. I will find joy. Some of you, for the first time, even this morning, some of you might find yourself the first time where Jesus is looking right at you and he's calling you to himself. Repent and believe in Jesus for your salvation. For others, he's looking at you and you've seen him before and he's calling you, like Peter, to walk in repentance again today and not just once but all of life because there's a beauty in bitter weeping over sin because on the other side is full and everlasting joy. So let's not be content with mere regret. Let's not be content with, you know, I I wish I would have done that differently I wish that would have turned out better. I'm sorry for how I got here. And let's not wallow in our guilt and shame either. Let's not be okay with just feeling bad. Let's walk in the freedom and joy that is ours in Christ because there's a difference between regret and repentance. But let's also not be afraid. Let's let's embrace the beauty that comes with some bitter weeping. Let's see our sin for what it is, and let's run to the cross. Let's confess to Jesus together, asking Him to cleanse us and forgive us, and then let us walk with a clean conscience and no regret, actual freedom from sin, turning from our past and walking forward in the light of Christ. Because Paul's right in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are free from our bondage to sin because Christ died for our sin and left it in the grave so that you and I can be made alive in Him and we can live by the power of the Spirit. This is good news for us. This is how we are saved and by this we are changed. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So if I could read Luke 22 through the lens of both 2 Corinthians and Psalm 30, Let me say it this way. Bitter weeping over sin produces a repentance that leads to salvation with everlasting joy. Let me say that again. Bitter weeping over sin produces repentance that leads to salvation with everlasting joy. So let's repent and let's repent with confidence and boldness and hope that Jesus is enough for us. That I don't have to hide anymore. I don't have to cover it. I don't have to pretend that it's not there. Jesus' work is sufficient so that the one who called us to himself in faith will complete that work of faith in us and we can be free of it and full of joy. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I I do pray 
that you'd continue to do what you can, only you can do in calling us to yourself. I thank you for your patience with us. As we pray, we ask that you would cause us by your grace and by your Holy Spirit to rightly grieve the sin in our lives, to not treat it lightly, but to hate it, to turn from it and to run to you, to cry out to you for mercy and receive your full and complete forgiveness, to receive your love. I pray that you'd produce produce repentance in us that leads to salvation, that you'd keep us from worldly grief, that you'd keep us from only seeing how our sin affects us more than how it offends you. Would you make us a people who are deeply sorrowful over sin and make us a people who are deeply grateful and worshipful for your mercy, that we would rejoice in your grace, we would rejoice in your forgiveness, that we would be a people who live forgiven. Would you continue to change us and make us more like Jesus, we pray. Glorify yourself in us and through us and use us as a display of your grace to a world crippled by sin and shame and in need of your salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.